Please stand for the reading of the word. We're in Daniel chapter 12. This is our penultimate sermon in our Daniel series. It means next to the last. Daniel chapter 12. At that time shall Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as been and never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. The word of the Lord. I think it's been a wonderful adventure, starting at the end of the summer, going through the entire fall, and now into the early winter, and looking at the book of Daniel. I was talking with Blake a few minutes ago, and we were talking about the, the text and the history and all that's there, and I said, one of the things about looking and studying through the book of Daniel, for most of you who know your Bibles pretty well anyway, is it may be like it was for me. I had studied the book of Daniel uh, for years, but I'd always been doing it in light of those texts, those handful of powerful, wonderful texts that talk about the coming Messiah, Christ, the kingdom of God, the sovereignty of God, and or the fascinating stories about the handwriting on the wall and then the lion's den and the big image and all of that sort of thing. What I had never done really was to go through there and talk about the king of the north and the king of the south and this person and that person and really relate that all and pull that together into the, the history, the secular history as we would call it, although there's really no such thing. You know that, don't you? God is sovereign over all of history. There's no ounce of history, no moment of history that's outside of his sovereign control. But we think of it that way as sacred history or redemption history, which is the story that specifically tells us about the coming of Christ and the works of God in that area. And then just what kind of flows and what we see uh, ordinarily in everyday life from uh, the history books. Well, when you put that all together, it gets to be kind of interesting because that detail that we looked at, and still there's a lot more than, than we didn't cover, but that detail is incredible in the sense that it shows uh, the grasp that the prophet had, not only historically and those that write later historically, but what he had in terms of predictive prophecy. And so just as kind of a little exercise before we move into this very last chapter, uh, I sort of sketched out about a dozen highlights by way of review of where we've been, just not reviewing the content, but picking up some of the highlights. At the very beginning, you remember, they said that Daniel had understanding, learning, and skill in interpreting visions. 
I'll say. <laughs> well, that's what's told right at the very outset. We saw that with Nebuchadnezzar's vision and Belshazzar's vision and in his own vision. And the toughest visions that Daniel had to deal with was that which the Lord gave him personally, especially this last one, which we're still in. This vision that uh, was horrifying to him. He couldn't physically and emotionally stand it. And the Lord had to come and personally strengthen him, either through the angel or through the very pre-incarnate uh, Christ himself, which is, I believe, what's happening. That's who I believe Michael is, by the way, in our text here, because the description is the great prince who has charge of your people. Well, there's one great prince, and that's the prince of peace, and that's Christ. And he's the one that has charge of his people, as we'll see in just a minute. But let's just sketch through a few of these. I'll try not to preach each one of them again. <clears throat> I'll try. God reveals mysteries. It is the Lord that makes known these things. Uh, here's the dream is certain and its interpretation sure. We have a literal uh, text here that fills out what Peter said. We have a more sure word of prophecy. We can depend on these things. The, the dream is certain. It happens. It comes to pass. And its interpretation is authentic and correct. Here's another one. The Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and gives it to whomever He wills. That same quotation slightly changed. The Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whomever He wills. Both two statements are in early chapters of Daniel here. Here's another one. For the saints of God Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Here's another his dominion, he's talking about the coming of the Son of Man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And then this is key, especially for our text this morning. This is earlier in the book. Understand, O Son of Man, that the vision is for the time of the end. The vision is for the time of the end. Another I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the last days. Did you get that? I'm here to cause you to understand what will happen to your people in the last days. That's what the book of Daniel is all about. I come to, uh, for the vision is for the days to come. In other words, it's future to Daniel in about approximately 500 B.C., for what is decreed shall be done. The determinative will of God acted out and carried out in, in human history. And then very recently this one. It still awaits the appointed time. It still awaits the appointed time. Do you get the feeling that God is in control of every bit of this? And that he's laid it out? just enough for Daniel to get an inkling, a hint, the gist of what God's doing and pass it on to us. This is definitely predictive prophecy and it's definitely dealing with the eschaton. The eschaton is the last day. And, and we hurry to our passage here right now because we're all of a sudden in the last day. These last few verses of chapter 11, remember 10, 11, and 12 are all of one, one piece. It's the vision that Daniel saw, his reaction to the vision, and then the Lord showing up and interpreting the vision and giving him specifics 
concerning uh, what the vision means and how it works out. That's what these last three chapters are about. And we keep talking about the end, the end, the last day, the coming day. We talked about the general term latter days, talks about the days of fulfillment. The latter days are the days of the coming of Christ. Christ came in 4 BC as birth. And that was during the time of the early portion of the Roman Empire, the fourth great kingdom. And it's that kingdom that Christ came to oppose as the great stone hewn out of the mountain without hands will come down and crush the iron and clay feet of the, of the, um, uh, the great beast. I mean, the great, the great uh, image. We're in the days of fulfillment. And the things that are talked about are the, are the uh, Roman Empire's conquest. And it took them a good long time to finally subdue uh, the lands of Syria and Egypt where the Ptolemies and the Seleucid dynasties were, but eventually did it. And that's where the chapter closes. We didn't look in detail at that. We sort of skipped over it, but that's really what it's all about. And then um, chapter 12 begins, at that time, what time? The appointed time, the prophesied time the talked about time, the determined time, a time that we've been leading up to now all of these years, 500 years of history with, with all the empires, the Babylon, the Persian, the Greeks, and so forth, all of that. At that time, the very end time, something's going to happen. And once again, the end times, the latter days are this whole epoch of time from the coming of Christ all the way through those first Decades, especially the seven decades in which Christ was here on earth, the 30 years, the 40 years that, that was uh, following that where the gospel was preached and then the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem, the temple, the nation of Israel, the priesthood, everything that Israel had physically and formally, they were wiped out by the Romans in 70 AD. The great time of God's ultimate indignation upon an unbelieving people. But it was during that same time, that 40-year period from the life, death, and resurrection of Christ in ascension up to the time of the destruction, 40 years in there, a full generation, 40 years in which the gospel was begun to be preached by the apostles. And the Jews, many, many of them in synagogues all across the world, not only in Judea, but also in the diaspora, all the cities, Bible says that Moses was read in every city. Can you imagine that? The Jews had been so dispersed for so long that there were synagogues in every Gentile city of the ancient world, a city of any size, I would suspect. There was at least one synagogue. And what went on in those synagogues? Well, in came the gospel preachers, Paul and, and uh, Stephen and, um, and, and men like uh, Barnabas and um, and, and they, Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla, and they came in teaching the people that Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified carpenter, was, in fact, the promised Messiah. And did that cause any trouble in the synagogues? In the book of Acts, you read about it. You pick up a lot in Paul's letters and other places. But it caused a horrible cleavage to rend the synagogue asunder. Two great camps in every synagogue. The believers in Jesus Christ had heard that news and said, we believe it. And they became, of course, the believers, the Christians. And then a large group 
in the synagogue as well said, we don't believe it. This is blasphemy. This is horrible. This is a disgrace. This doesn't fit the scriptures. This is, this is not true at all. And so believing Israel, the remnant of Israel, the ones that accepted Christ for who he was as their very savior and king, were kicked out of the synagogues. Jesus had said, you'll be kicked out of the synagogues. And guess what? They were kicked out of the synagogues. And when they did, in the, like in the case of Corinth, they went next door with some of the synagogue leadership and, and those who were among the believers, and they started a Christian church. <laughs> That's how those first church plants came about. They were believing Jews, and they had believed what God had said, and they went on to become what we know as the church, God's gathered people, His elect people the very new Israel, the very fulfillment of the remnant of Israel, the very fulfillment of everything that God had promised to his people was fulfilled in that group of believing Jews, the church. And we know the year, the story of two millennia since then of how things have gone. Immediately, one of the debates was, well, if it belongs to the Jews, it's to the Jew. It doesn't belong to the Gentiles. And along came the very apostles themselves in their first council and said, yes, it belongs to the Gentiles. It's to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. And so we saw Gentiles becoming, coming into the church there very, very, very quickly. And as happened then, as it went around the world, the church became predominantly Gentile, but never breaking its roots and ties back to the seed and the stump of Jesse, David's father, the house of David, the promised Messiah. And so that is where we have the story beginning to take some dramatic changes. Never been anything more dramatic than, than the coming of Christ, the ministry of Christ on earth with his preaching and his miracle working, and then, then his great work of suffering and dying, and then the preaching of the gospel, the dynamics of that, the conversion of the Jews, the conversion and addition of the Gentiles as the wild olive branches grafted into the olive tree. And then a very dramatic time happened. And there may be a reference here to it, at least not exclusively, but it, it, says, it says there will be a time of trouble which has never been since there was a nation till that time. That may have a, a reference in some sense to 70 A.D., that great destruction which ended the theocratic kingdom on earth and brought to an end the rebellious, unbelieving people. Now, don't get upset about that. God's been whacking off his people and getting rid of them ever since the beginning. Go back to the days in the wilderness. In the days in the wilderness, they have had nothing but... but unbelief and murmuring and complaining and God let a vast number of them die in the wilderness God when he comes right down to it will keep his word and punish and destroy unbelievers whether they're ethnic children of Abraham or not and it's called the great indignation and that's what God did and God's not changed that's still the way God will, in fact, operate. He will eliminate unbelievers. He will vindicate believers. He will save believers. That's what it says here. But at that time, but at that time, 
your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name was found written in the book. Now the Bible speaks in several places, going all the way back to the Old Testament, Isaiah and Jeremiah, about a role, a, a book of remembrance, a roll call in there that, that keeps records. The, uh, the Jewish people were pretty good about keeping records. They kept chronologies, they kept genealogies, and they kept historical records. And um, so that, that is kind of an a, uh, um, anthropomorphic way of thinking about God's book of remembrance. Who does he have on his role? Who belongs to him? Who's registered as a citizen of his kingdom? And those that are written in the book of life, that's what it's called later. It's called the Lamb's book of life, which gives us a lot more detail about it. It is the, the list of those who have as their possession everlasting life. And so that's the deliverance that that God promises. And what he does is he's nothing other than, verse 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. In other words, there's a resurrection of the dead. And it is a resurrection of all the dead. And it's a resurrection for some to eternal life. It's a resurrection to others of everlasting condemnation, everlasting damnation, everlasting punishment. Now, who would come up with such a ridiculous notion as that if you think about it the way that the modern Christians do in a lot of ways? They, they uh, talk about that. Well, let me, let me give you a few passages out of the New Testament as to who might have, uh, who might have come up with uh, an idea like that. And I'll just go to one gospel. It's, it's in all of them, but I'll just use the gospel of John. John chapter 6, verse 38. And we're talking about God delivering His people, those whose names are on the, the roll as the book of life. This is how Jesus talked about it. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. There's that precious promise of Christ himself that he is the prince of his people. He's the one that's keeping the role. He's the one that has done the work of deliverance for his people. And so if you come to Christ, he will never cast you out. That doesn't say, if you come to Christ, I won't re reject you. It says, I will never cast you out. When you come to Christ, he will not cast you out. He says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. There's the plan. God sent the son to actually rescue the actual people that the father had actually given to the son. And once the Son comes and saves and delivers, dies for, atones for, those people, that group of people, once they have come to Him, He will never cast them out. He will never lose one of them. There's a, there's a definite number, and the number that starts will be the number that finishes. It'll be difficult times. There's a lot of things to endure. There's a lot of things to happen. But the truth is, Christ 
saves us, and he keeps us. That's what he came to do. He didn't come to just make a way of salvation possible if maybe or maybe not you'd like to come to Jesus tonight or not on a whim. No, he came to save his people from their sins. That's what his name means. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. There's your theology right there just in that one sentence. If you just take each word, you see what Christ has done. This is Christ kind of spelling it out a little bit. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What is that will? And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Those that have been given to Christ, he's going to give. When you come to Christ, you've come to a solid, secure Savior. People worry about perseverance of the saints, once saved, always saved. There's a lot of debate about what you've got to do. to If you get in the kingdom, what have you got to do to stay in the kingdom and all that? Here's the will of the Father, that Jesus is going to be the one to save, and he's not going to lose anybody. So if you really belong to Christ this morning, if your name is on the roll, if he belongs to you and you belong to him, most importantly, then you're safe and secure for all eternity. In the very next sentence, he said, and I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. That's exactly the last day. That's what Daniel's been driving at now for for all of these chapters, is what's going to happen on that last day? Well, God's going to raise up his people. For this is the will of my Father, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him. And oh, by the way, have you done that? Have you looked on the sun? You remember how Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness that if all you do is look at the sun in belief and faith and look to him in trust and dependence, call upon him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not yours to worry about who's on the roll and who's elect and who's not and all that. It's yours to worry about what have I done with Christ? That's the question you need to ponder. Have I looked? And having looked, do I now live and that's what Christ is. He says, he says, whoever looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. There's the eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. That's what Daniel's talking about in our text this morning. I will raise Him up on the last day. There's this vital connection between Christ's work, His work on your behalf, and the last day. When finally, if you think about it, that's when you really receive the full-blown, the fully-developed eternal life. Right now, a lot of what we have in our eternal life is promissory note. We have an earnest of an inheritance. We have a down payment on a proposition. But it will be finally finished in the, in the, in the resurrection. And there's a couple of other verses here in this same uh, chapter. So Jesus said to them... Let me see, let me find my place here. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. There it is again. I will raise him up on the last day. Well, let's, let's move along real quickly. Uh, we're going to stay in the Gospel of John, move over a couple of chapters to um, chapter 10. 
And we're talking about Christ delivering His people and the consequences of the great comfort we have that this is going to be our reality on the last day. Uh, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me. Notice how often the Father and the Son work together. Did you know your salvation is a cooperative effort of the entire triune God? The Father marks you out for salvation, devises the plan, decrees it all, makes sure that His divine power and purpose will be fulfilled. The Son comes and actually secures your salvation, satisfies the wrath of God, bears your sins, fully atones for your sins, and goes into the grave and there buries your sins in an expiation and a distance that the sins can be remembered against you no more. Rest in his finished work on the Sabbath day in the tomb, and then comes forth on the first day of the week, on the third day, raised from the dead for your justification, Paul says in his letters. So he's now justified you. He's, make note of this word, he has now accomplished righteousness. His righteousness has been imputed to you. You now have his righteousness, so you're able to live. When Christ came out of that tomb, what he did was he was the first fruits of a brand new order. It's called the new order, the new heaven and the new earth. He's a new humanity. There's a whole new group of people. They, these, this people needs to be born again. They need to have birth, just like physical birth in the, the, the race of Adam. Now we need spiritual birth in the race and the line and the lineage and the family of Christ. In other words, we're not prepared for the new heaven and the new earth without eternal life. And eternal life comes in Christ. And eternal life is not given to us in any physical, literal sense at our conversion. But it is bestowed upon us spiritually, and we're securing Christ. And now we're talking about the actual fulfillment and accomplishment of it. We're talking about when it actually comes to pass. I give thee eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Here's the Father working with the Son again. My Father, who has given them to me, by the way, that's election if you want to work it out through all of Scripture. That's what election is. It's the Father loving you and handing you over to the Son and let the Son save you. And Christ dies for that exact number of people that the Lord has given him. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's how secure we are. We've got the Lord has us in his hand. That's probably good enough. But just to be sure, wrapped around the strong hand, the nail-scarred hand of Christ, is the loving hand of the Father. And we're in the midst of that. No wonder the psalmist could be excited about dwelling in the secret place, being under the shadow of the Almighty. He, He experienced in his conscience that sweet, sweet assurance that he belonged to the Lord. And no matter what, he could not be disenfranchised from that great inheritance that the Father 
had bestowed upon him and which Christ the Son had secured for him. Now we'll just stay in John and go to one more passage here very quickly. You remember the story of Lazarus? You remember how when he was called, Lazarus was sick, the Lord was called, he delayed a couple of days just to give Lazarus just enough time to die. <laughs> and he got in a lot of trouble. His disciples thought that was uh, really a wrong move. And certainly the sisters of Lazarus thought it was not a very thoughtful thing to do. But Christ says he was doing it for a reason. And the reason was to give greater glory. He could have healed Lazarus. If he had showed up, he would have. But he wanted to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so when, when Martha confronts him as he arrives, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Where did she get a notion like that? And not too many places in the Old Testament she could get one. There's some beautiful poetic language in the Psalms, Isaiah, and other places that talk about being raised to, to new life, life after death, eternal life, life in a new heaven, a new earth. There's, there's places in the, But the one place where it just flat out says it's Daniel. And Martha had been reading the book of Daniel and been studying, probably been studying the book of Daniel under Jesus' teaching. What do you think? But anyway, she had her theology right. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Well, that's the question, isn't it? Because I live, you shall live also, said Christ. The question is right there in the text. Do you believe this? Do you? 